Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. And Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And your host for this very special episode of Lung Cancer Considered on Gender Equity. Today, we are joined by Her Royal Highness Princess Dina Miret of Jordan. Her Royal Highness Princess Dina Miret is a global advocate for cancer control and non-communicable diseases and mother of a cancer survivor. Princess Dina currently serves as the Honorary President of the European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer, a patron of the International Society of Pediatric Oncology, member of the WHO Expert Group for Elimination of Cervical Cancer, and a member of the United Nations University High-Level Advisory Committee for Gender and Health Hub. Princess Dina served as president of the Union for International Cancer Control from 2018 to 2020. She was the first Arab and non-medical person to have been elected in such a prestigious global post. Welcome, Her Royal Highness Princess Dina Mirid O'Jordan. Thank you so much. We also have the honor to have Dr. Heather Weekly, currently ISLC president, past ISLC board member, and chief of medical oncology at Stanford University. Dr. Weekly was an essential member of the team that started the Women in Thoracic Oncology event at the World Conference on Lung Cancer back in 2019 in Barcelona, Spain. Welcome, Dr. Weekly. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're also joined by the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer Chair, Dr. Fiona Hagee-Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a radiation oncology at Peter McCollum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia. Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Trans-Tasman Radiation Oncology Group. Dr. Higgy Johnson, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. It is our true honor to have the three of you on Lung Cancer Considered discussing a very important subject, gender equity. To our listeners, we will cover gender equity when it comes to cancer risk reduction and diagnostic delays and gender equity and the healthcare workforce. Princess Dina Merritt, you have been a champion on gender equity at the global level. When it comes to cancer prevention and control, as per today, which do you you think are the biggest challenges to reaching gender equity in cancer prevention and control globally? Thank you so much. I would say the biggest challenge is the fact that on an institutional and structural level, at the workplace or at various institutions, whether global or local, we are still stuck at the patriarchal system uh, that we've all inherited as women, right? And the fact that there is no deliberate action to actually, on an institutional level, to actually change the status quo. I would say this is the big thing because we've seen positive things happen when on an institutional level, Again, you don't want to wait. You know, you hear many stories about women saying, oh, I had a great mentor who happens to be a male and who opened the door for me. And that's great. But we cannot wait for that on a, on a whim, right? Wait for that wonderful person who is very confident and happy to open doors for people and, and, and lift them up and so on. We need change to happen on an institutional level. And we've seen that happen when there has been a spotlight and a gender lens, uh, put in place in a workplace where they uh, provide uh, support for women during that critical time in their careers when they have kids, for example, or starting a family. They have flexible working hours. Uh, they can do Zoom work. They can do remote working, uh, etc. Or the, the ones that have mentorship programs, serious mentorship programs and leadership programs within that institution. We've seen some women pull through to actually you know, uh, manage to stay on their career path and reach leadership positions. But as we speak today, the numbers are still super low. We're talking about 70% of women in the workforce globally, women actually delivering healthcare, but it's still being led by men. 
we are having a missed opportunity, you know, let alone the right, by the way, the right for women to be on the policy table, but a missed opportunity on so many levels for women to be able to add their leadership skill set that men don't have. And it's always a clever thing to have everybody with different skill sets and tool sets to be on the policy table. So that's one. And uh, we're having that missed opportunity to have their insights, especially in health system that caters for both men and women. You need representation, not just male, female, but also vulnerable groups. You need people with disabilities to be on the table. You need other vulnerable groups that don't access the healthcare system in the same way to also be on the table. So it's really a logical no-brainer thing to say that we need equity on the table. And for that to happen, you need a deliberate action to make this happen. Thank you. Um, I have a follow-up question on that because the world changed with the pandemic. What is your perception after we're settling out after a global crisis when it comes to gender equity? Has the pandemic negatively affected uh, gender equity as women needed to stay at home more to care for the children that needed to be, for example, virtually uh, attend school and all the challenges? What is your perception of after this big change? Well, first of all, the corona really unmasked so many uncomfortable truths. I mean, I know they asked us to don masks, but it actually unmasked so many things. And one of them, it unmasked the fact that 70% of women are on the field and they were of the most affected, right, on a, a risk. They took a lot of the risk because they are on the field. That's one. So that's on the bad side. Uh, and then on the negative side as well, it showcased that women still bear, you know, the responsibility for taking care of the rest where they work. Plus, they still have to manage the household, the kids, the schooling and so on. So that was outed, so to speak. But at the same time, the positive side of the pandemic is the fact that you can do remote working, even though you still have that added extra thing, but that's also a positive side to it. And the other side is that female leaders all over the world, they were the best to actually deal with the pandemic, right? New Zealand, Germany, female leaders all over the world, they were the best and most decisive and most honest with their people, right? They were able to communicate better with empathy, with honesty, and so on. They It also showcased women leaders. But unfortunately, I would say post-pandemic, we kind of feel, I feel, I don't know if I'm right in saying so, we're back to the same old, you know, many things were better during the pandemic, but somehow we're back to the old wheel of things. And that is a shame because, you know, it has proven so many things that we have a chance to actually write, make right. But uh, somehow we go back to our old ways and, and we need to challenge that or continually challenge that. Thank you. Dr. Weekly. for many of us, you have been a role model. I remember being early in training and saying, oh, oh I want to be like her when I grew up. But you have faced many challenges. For a woman in thoracic oncology, where are some of those challenges that persist and may have you know, become more obvious during the pandemic? Thanks for the, the really... Good question. I, I think that your work actually has helped to highlight some of the the challenges we face, where we're still not having women uh, presenting the big trials as often as men. Um, we're still not having women on the steering committees for the biggest trials as often as men. And you had done some of the work to really highlight that um, in your evaluations of, of podium presentations as well as publications. We also, as we look, I'll talk from the United States perspective at women in leadership at institutions, it's still very dominantly men, though there is awareness in the U.S. and concerted efforts to to work to change that. When we think globally, it varies around the world. Uh, some countries are making a big effort to say, why isn't there a woman there? You know, who did you consider? Who are all the people who were looked at for this position before that person was chosen? And it's those sorts of questions that help us get towards more equity. For many people who we think for the first names to come forward, and we fall easily into stereotypes of of the, the men who have sort of been in those positions in the past. And it's only when we take that step second look of saying, who else? 
that we then can really think about all of the people who might actually fit into a particular role well and not just follow the immediate instinct of, of going for who looks like and seems like all the people who've been in that position before. That's what helps us to really step back and, and think about who really is the best leader for this particular position that we're looking for, regardless of, of what they look like or what their background is. And maybe because of whatever that background is or differences by gender, that might make them a better leader that we wouldn't have necessarily come to first. And so the more we can do that, the more we can continue to make things easier, but we're not there yet. And that's why there continues to be challenges. Uh, I've been fortunate by being in Northern California where there weren't as many barriers always right in, in front of me. And I think uh, I've been helped too by many people who, both men and women, uh, just point to what uh, Princess Dina was bringing up. There can be many men who are very strong and confident in who they are and confident enough to promote others around them, whether those are other men or other women um, or people with you know other various backgrounds, as you alluded to. But that's not always the case. And when you don't have that person or if you have someone who's actively oppressing that it becomes particularly challenging. So I've been fortunate in not having to face that. Um, and that's allowed me to then move forward. And I think for all of us, it's having the confidence in who we are as people and who we are in our jobs and where we want to go and then being able to move forward, even if there are barriers. And I think that from a societal perspective, following those traits is often harder for women than for men because many of us are are taught from early ages to to step back sometimes in those situations and not always push against where there is some um, some friction. So I, I think that plays a role, but I, I don't want to speak for everyone because, of course, uh, we we are coming from many different places in the world in this table today. And it, uh, I, I think that uh, we have to be very mindful of the cultural norms that people come from and how to change those in ways that allow them to be supported um, which can vary quite a bit. So again, from, from a Northern California perspective, I have a lot of advantages that other people don't, and that's helped me um, to move forward. But I also try to then, from the position where I am now, use that as a platform to to speak to what's important and to, to emphasize the importance of, as we are naming people to be participants or leaders of different um, programs or conferences or steering committees or whatever it is, I have now the ability to sort of raise my voice to say, and, and this person, and, and why aren't we thinking about this person and why that person in a way that people can stop and think and realize, oh, there might be others who could even be better than the first person I'm thinking of. Thank you. And that's a great segue for my question to Dr. Hickey Johnson, because gender equity and gender inequality is barrier by geographic location. So you're on the other side of Northern California and Australia. What are some of those challenges that you have experienced and still see when it comes to women in thoracic oncology? Well, you know, I mean, Australia and the Asian region is incredibly diverse. That's the first thing to say. And I think one of the issues is even in Australia and New Zealand until very recently, it was kind of not okay to put gender on the table as something you were going to look at. I'll be frank, you know, it's probably only in the last five to 10 years that there's been an awareness that having women engaged in the academic medical workforce is even desirable or important. So, and that's, those are Western countries, you would think with a modern mindset but it's not okay. And in, in our country, the other thing which we face is often this discussion about meritocracy and what is worth promoting. And are we aiming for equality of opportunity or equality of outcome for our female academics? Um, so for this particular conference, it's been very interesting. Um, ISLC brought to the table targets for gender equity and geographic diversity. And I'll be frank, it created... Um, I shouldn't say that word on a podcast because it's going to be recorded, but it created issues for some people in our, in our region, you know, because they come from cultures where if you go to academic conference, and I've done this, sometimes I'm usually the youngest by a long way, but also the only woman in the room. And that's normal, really normal. And even though everybody who is doing the work, you can have a sort of diverse workforce, the, the representative is nearly always an older senior male. And that's just the cultural norm in this region, even in rich countries. And the other thing we faced was, um, just as Heather said, you know, women are acculturated. 
to enable, to serve, to care, and to step backwards. So quite often we found that we'd nominate, say, an amazing woman who we know was capable, would do the work, cared for everybody, to be a track chair or be a speaker. And she would step back and say, oh, no, you know, you should ask this, my colleague, <laughs> this professor <laughs> instead, because I'm not senior enough. So in, in some cases, we, we created equity by telling them they had to do the work, they had to just do it. Um, and they're fine. And then you have to provide appropriate supports because you can't take people who've never been allowed to take a leadership role and just then expect them to, to thrive if they don't know how to do it. You've got to support them, mentor them, nurture them and provide a practical structure so, they, so that that first experience is a good experience. So we did that at every level from selecting track chairs through to selecting speakers. And I think 55% of our speakers are female. Yeah which is awesome and a tribute to the quality of female talent in our region. Yeah. That's wonderful. And thank you for all that work. As we continue our conversation, we know that it's time for interventions. We have discussed, discussed and reported gender inequalities. Princess Dina, where are some of those interventions you have developed with the many organizations that you already work or are working that has shown to improve uh, for women to reduce the risk of cancer or to help these women as they are into their journey uh, or a cancer diagnosis? Yes. First of all, when I was Director General of the King Hussein Cancer Foundation, uh, I uh, helped establish, uh, uh, not alone, of course, with the team at, in Jordan, uh, the first Jordan breast cancer program, for example. And that was like, I think it was 2006, 2000, yeah, 2006, when really cancer was still so stigmatized uh, then. And uh, we really uh, did, all of us, the team, did an amazing work with the center, with the foundation, mobilizing the communities to actually put breast cancer on the map. To the point, I remember uh, some radio a media person said, you know, what about the men? They started to get jealous. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I mean, I have sons too. I love my sons. We should take on colorectal cancer and so on, but give us a chance. We're just figuring out you know, the number one cancer in Jordan overall was breast cancer. And I'm very pleased to say that now this program is still thriving. It's fantastic. You know, people talk so openly about breast cancer, mammograms. You know, we went from no mention at all of the disease, the word cancer, to actually now, you know, uh, everybody knows about breast. So that's fantastic. So one of those are one of the things that... Uh, uh, we did to support women uh, who are at risk uh, for breast cancer, for example. Cervical cancer, I'm on the uh, expert group of WHO because, you know, this is the one cancer that really you can do everything for. You can prevent, you can early detect, and you can treat. And the vaccine is there. It's so infuriating that this is not rolled out. You know, it should be already on national vaccine program. It should be, right? Um, but... Uh, you know, we're fighting for that to happen and working with many countries and low middle income countries to make sure that our young girls and boys, if possible, to also be vaccinated against uh, cervical cancer. So that's for one, but also to push for the treatment to be accessible uh, to all. Uh, so that's definitely the I always say cervical cancer really is the one example a that transcends non-communicable and communicable diseases, but also it really is the litmus test, you know, about our global health system. Are we serious about delivering equity and access or not? Because this is the one disease that has all. So what are, what are we waiting for exactly? So that's one. The other thing that uh, throughout my organizations as UICC and EORTC, I'm now the, it's an, uh, I don't know if you know about this organization, maybe you do, it's it's uh, for clinical trials in Europe. It's an NGO and it's a fantastic organization. And we are trying actually to uh, give access to clinical trials. This is not even gender equity, to clinical trials for our patients in the region, in the Middle East. And so we're working with that because, you know, in the past, it's not easy. Maybe, I have to say, maybe our hospitals or 
medical institute were not mature enough for data collection mm-hmm. and so but now we are mm-hmm. so we're fighting for that and um and and they've given access to joint clean and this is fantastic not just for us but for cancer in general because you know our genetic uh, predisposition on certain cancer might actually give some answers to overall cancer cure in general and and like you said you cannot you know there is also inequity uh, in taking biopsies from various uh, diverse groups and and clinical trials as well so that's another good thing that's happening but on specifically on uh, and UICC now is supporting is is established the atom projects for giving access to uh, medications and that's for all not just uh, women for all low middle income countries and so on so a lot is happening to reduce inequity but on the local level i'm very proud to say that um, a group of physicians uh, in jordan started uh, they've asked me to patronize two conferences the first ever in jordan for uh, female physicians in jordan and to highlight you know uh, because we do have huge number of female physicians in Jordan. They are actually, you know, in the medical school. I remember one doctor said when she first joined in the 50s, it was the mustache culture, right? <laughs> they say the mustache pictures because mostly they were men. <laughs> but now it's like 50% plus it's women graduating from medical school and earning the top marks. But like everywhere else, they are falling in the in the gap so this medical conference was showcasing that we should highlight why is it there is no gender equity in leadership positions in jordan you know i even said it you know how come we never had a female health minister why is it you know we've never had one we have so many amazing female doctors that we all go to so that we've highlighted that but also we've taken a positive role in joining with the uh, British uh, uh, College of Physicians, whereby we started an empowerment and leadership program for female, then not me, this amazing group of women. And uh, the program is starting to have workshops, leadership, mentorship, because like you said, you are right. It's important for them to see what it looks like, you know, uh, and, and it showcases the positive things that was happening also in England. By the way, everybody is... Uh, is like you said, even Western countries, they're also, uh, you know, we haven't reached the dream, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So a lot is going on, and I'm proud to be part of the Jordan work as well, and also to advocate globally, because really the world is is missing the wonderful brain of women and the hard work <laughs> and the tenacity. <laughs> the women are known for being resilient and we still here and we'll be here for quite some time. So this is a great set way for, for my next question. Dr. Weekly, you are the second female president for ISOC. The organization will turn 50 next year, 50 years, at the 2024 World Conference. Why do you think we're still having have enough representation of women in the presidency? In order to make it to the presidency, you have to have to have had the opportunities beforehand to become known globally so that you will be voted for and elected into the position. And so when we look at what are the opportunities that ILC, ISLC provides for its members, it's to be part of committees. Uh, to do the great work, uh, to be involved in planning the conferences, um, to form the network of connections who can, um, people that you can turn to, like, I'm thinking about doing a review on this topic. Do you want to work with me? I'm thinking of looking at this question in my patient population. Do you also have patients with similar characteristics? And is this something that we could look at in a broader group by participating together? Um, it is, it's that sort of roles and then taking that to eventually be elected onto the board. And in order to get elected onto the board, it also is you've had enough opportunities to publish and get your name known, to be up on the podium and get known as an individual, to network so that people know who you are. And when your name shows up on the ballot, they think that would be a great person to be part of the leadership of IASLC. And I think historically, 
that mindfulness of gender hasn't always been there, just as much as the mindfulness of who we are as an organization, which is multidisciplinary um, and global, that hasn't always been quite as front of mind. Because if you look historically, uh, we, we got the global part right, because we had set in a mandatory uh, rotation um, between Asia and North America and Europe. Um, but we didn't include all of the world. Um, and so that's something that we are actually working on right now is to redefine our regions so that we can have better representation from the Middle East, yes. from Africa, from South America, yes. um, to recognize that uh, we, you, we can't just look at it from the perspective of the the, the biggest as far as resource-wise and, and therefore health discovery. So that's one thing, but that doesn't get back to your question about the, um, the gender issue. Um, we've also taken a, a, a big look at um, the multidisciplinary aspects of who we are. So um, we are a society, there's a lot of medical oncologists, but also a good number of thoracic surgeons and radiation oncologists, pulmonary medicine doctors, patient advocates, and, and many others. And so as we today look at who is on our board and who are our committee chairs and who are the people on the committees, um, we are much more conscious of making sure that we have a balance by region, that we have a balance by discipline, unless it's a discipline-focused committee, of course, um, and by gender. And so that is a specific part of our guidelines when we are putting conference committees together, co committees in general, and also when we're looking at the makeup of the board. So that's providing more opportunities for women as well as for people who were not historically in the leadership team. Uh, and where all this links in is in order to get to be president, you have to have participated on the board and done these other things. And if you look back historically, we've had some phenomenal women who have been on the board in the past, um, but they didn't always make it onto the ballot for presidency. And uh, when they were there, um, and I'm actually looking, thinking back, we, we haven't actually been able to put as many women on that. And that's something that that's the, the biggest issue as to why we haven't had women in the presidency. And it's because they hadn't had those opportunities to get known in a way where when people looked around and said, aha. Now, part of this is also global, right? When you look in Asia, um, there is a lot of awareness now of the importance of, of getting the women um, voices heard, uh, having women given those opportunities to be leading trials, to be presenting. But that hasn't always been the case, and those changes are um, still um, behind um, in, in some of the countries in Asia, further ahead in some others. But uh, we just had our election for Asia, and we, we really didn't have women who ended up on that ballot. We will be, uh, the next presidential rotation will be through North America. And there, I'm quite sure that we will have women um, on the ballot for the presidency because we now have a, a strong group of women um, leaders in North America who have been a dedicated members of ISLC for the 20 or so years it takes to to get known in a way where you could actually be leading the organization and have provided that term on the board. So I think that will change. Um, I'm going to echo what uh, Fiona just had talked about, what they did for designing this conference. Uh, for the first time, we have more women than men on the program, and that that's phenomenal. Um, uh, and it it speaks to, as you mentioned, the quality of the science that's being done by women. But it also speaks to awareness of getting people up on the podium who are doing the work, um, who can be the future leaders if they haven't been able to get to that point already. Um, and so it is something that ISLC takes very seriously. And there is a, a very much a mindfulness of who has made it onto the committee, who is on the board now and who is getting themselves through all those steps eligible to be able to run for presidency um, and awareness of the fact that women haven't been there so much in the past for many, many years. Certainly something that's top of mind for me. And I think we will be continuing to see change and it's top of mind for a lot of people who are active in the organization. Thank you. The future is bright and the future is female. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good men too. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Higgy Johnson, planning a global conference comes with many challenges. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that slowly. Uh, but one that your organizing committee took as a goal was equal representation of women at the podium conference. Why is this important? Well, there's so many reasons. I mean, our patients 
are not just men and they need to have doctors who look like they do. I mean, we've all walked into a clinic as a woman, I have anyway, and all the consultants are male. And it's so disenfranchising walking to go into a mammogram, for example, and everybody who sees you is male. Um, and that still happens in some settings. And so there's the first thing is that how can we understand the lived experience of our patients if that group of people is excluded from decision making? That's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is that, to be frank, as we've shown, the quality of the work, the quality of the academic thought in done by women is really, really good and it just needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be seen, it needs to be celebrated. Um, and um, and so it's, it's not just, it is about both equity, but it is also about quality um, and not downplaying um, what women do and how much they achieve. So that's one major reason, yeah. Thank you. As we continue the conversation, it's important that we talk about the disease that many of us care about and treat. And lung cancer in women has unique characteristics from risk factors associated with suicidal roles and low to middle income country, indoor uh, wood burning, the cooking is often delegated to the women. So they get exposed to this biomass uh, pollution at home. Uh, we also know that women tend to delay seeking care as women often prioritize the health of other members of their family. And secondary is also gender bias. There's a large global belief that women do not get lung cancer and lung cancer is a disease of men, which actually the data shows the opposite way increasing incidence. So Princess Dina, what are um, some of the plans to improve access to the care of women to reduce potential diagnostic delays. And one message you would like to share with the world when you see lung cancer uh, affecting women. Um, well, actually, uh, certainly in Jordan, if I may uh, share that experience. Unfortunately, we are on the map to achieving equity in tobacco addiction. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, that's one it's terrible we're still far from it but we certainly be, seem to be on the path because when i was growing up uh um women for not for health reasons we were you know we were told you're not a honorable girl if you smoke you know it was looked at from that angle which is great any angle is good to stop you from smoking and so we did it you know good girls didn't smoke um so that was a good thing but then now with the trends with the shisha becoming like reaching stratospheric uh, new uh, rise even in your countries, by the way, in the States, it's looked at as a very hip culture and so on. People don't realize it's not only as bad as traditional cigarettes, even worse, because you're sitting for hours and hours on end, you know, socializing and smoking all this carcinogenic stuff inside it and so on. So women uh, addiction to tobacco has been, you know, it's really, really increased, especially with the shisha. Because they, it's and even you know it's terrible and even with children running around, normalizing this whole thing, you see the aunt, the grandmother, the everybody's smoking. It's terrible. So on that aspect, uh, unfortunately, we're we're uh, joining the ranks very fast. Certainly in the Middle East, I would say a case that wasn't the case. But going back to your question about women in in lung cancer, how can we? protect them. It's really, I would say, from the tobacco scourge, whether from passive smoking or smoking in our region, in low middle income countries who are suffering from high addiction of smoking. So that's one way um, to do that. In terms of, uh, because, you know, lung cancer patients actually usually present late, right? Um, I suppose, you know, awareness, uh, uh, definitely countries who use wood burning, you know, we know the cause, governments, it's their duty to, to see another solution where, you know, their women, half their population is being, you know, uh, facing this uh, this pollution. That's the duty on governments to actually, in, you know, provide the enabling environments for a person to be able to lead the so-called healthy lifestyle, right? If governments don't do that. You know, poverty is, you know, they have no other 
chance except but to be exposed to wood burning. Um, certainly in breast cancer, for example, you know, we've supported women by removing stigma on breast cancer, the same we can do for lung cancer, uh, to, to allow early access, at least to present yourself to the doctors early on, especially if you know you are uh, a heavy smoker. And in general, for cancer patients, I think, in general, it's, it's really, I would say, prevention, tobacco, tobacco, tobacco. I mean, this is the one disease that we know for sure 90% is due to tobacco and pollution. I mean, that, that is a fact. We cannot contest that. So that seems to me the no-brainer that we should tackle. That's one, to close the tap of new customers of lung cancer. Then, of course, you have the early detection. You know, we're unfortunately, we all know low-dose CT is not really accessible to most countries, so it's expensive. I hope they find something else that we can do. But at least high-income countries should try to uh, focus on at least the heavy smokers. I know in the U.S. you have some guidelines on that. Uh, or And definitely awareness in general so that at least you can increase voluntary screenings at least, uh, not to miss that opportunity. And uh, the, the treatment in general, how to help women access the care. But really, I would say it's not just the gender thing. It's also a low middle income country thing or vulnerable groups in high income kind who don't have insurance and so on. This is a whole story on its own because it's so expensive treating lung cancer, especially now with personalized medicine. Uh, you know, a whole chunk of people are excluded uh, with the prices of these drugs and so on. So women and cancer men, men in low middle income countries are facing a double inequity now, not being able to be treated for the normal uh, forms of treatment, but also from personalized medicine, which seems to have a great impact. Now people can survive five years or more from lung cancer, which really says that now with this personalized medicine, excluding people uh, who are challenged financially or countries that are challenged financially, personalized medicine is really just becoming as if it is for persons with a big bank account. And that not a trajectory we want to see. And we want to call on the global health systems, the stakeholders, governments, pharma, um, you name it, UN agencies, etc. Do the same what you do for viruses. You know, do some consortiums, the same you did with AIDS, the same you did with Corona, etc. You know what to do when there is a political will. You know, when you weigh political will on these issues, you can solve things. You can bring the prices down. You can make it more accessible. But in a way, they need to care enough. And this is a new campaign, actually, by the NCD Alliance, which I love. It's we know what to do. We have the tools. We have the experience. But we need to care enough for non-communicable diseases, the same as we do for viruses. You know, I hate to say it, but countries usually act faster on viruses uh, because, you know, it's coming to us. It's going to reach our shores if we don't do anything about it. But non-communicable, they're stationary. Um, so it's happening elsewhere. You know, we ignore it. But uh, this is what needs to be done. Um, these are the sort of uh, issues that we need to speak about. Thank you, President Nina. That provides a comprehensive thing, so many things we all can do. As we continue to talk about lung cancer in women, Dr. Weekly, in our clinics, we all have seen these younger women that uh, are told, your symptoms were secondary to anxiety or asthma, and no diagnostic tests are done. And the problem with this is delaying diagnosis in lung cancer is significantly uh, related to outcomes. So why those gender bias exists when it comes to lung cancer? And what can our colleagues, patients, friends and family do to remove these uh, bias that surrounding lung cancer, particularly to women? So the vast majority of lung cancer around the world is still caused by tobacco smoking, as, as Princess Tina had highlighted. And um, the, the challenge that we face is that not all lung cancer is caused by tobacco smoking. And so I think that most people 
recognize that if there's a, a person, regardless of gender, who has a smoking history, who's presenting with a new cough, that idea about lung cancer comes to mind. And I think diagnostic workups are started. The particular challenge, though, for many people, especially younger patients, uh, and this varies geographically, especially much more common in Asia, parts of um, the U.S. And, and around the world, where lung cancer also happens to people who don't have a smoking history. And the idea that you can get lung cancer without a smoking history is still something that isn't front of mind for many, many people. And so that definitely can delay diagnosis. But I think that's for both men and for women, though it does seem to be more prevalent in women. We don't have as much data about that globally. There has been some wonderful work, uh, particularly done in Taiwan, uh, showing that even as lung cancer, as smoking rates have dropped, the rates of adenocarcinoma of the lung have gone up. Uh, and so there, we don't yet know why, but this has definitely been seen. And that certainly is delaying diagnosis and leading to questions about, well, how do we find lung cancer when we aren't thinking about it because the normal risk factors aren't there? And um, there's actually going to be some great work that we're highlighting at WCLC on um, operationalizing screening in people without a smoking history where there's felt to be a higher prevalence. But what do you do then in other parts of the world where it's not recognized as being of higher prevalence and yet it still happens? That's a great question. And that's where some of the other modalities be besides just the CT screening need to play a role. And Princess Dina had brought up this idea of the low-dose CT screening, it can work, but it's not accessible to the vast majority of the world. And it does bring in other risks, and we therefore need to be doing more. Uh, and that's where there's a lot of work being done on other diagnostic tools, uh, blood test types of things. And there's tremendous progress being made, but it's still, we have a lot of work to do. And that's something that ISLC, many of our members are definitely at the forefront of that research. There's more that should be and hopefully can be supported by the many organizations who are also not organizations, but governments and um, people who are profiting from the treatments that we're able to offer lung cancer patients and just from um, different perspectives where there is is funding on supporting the work that's going to help us be able to identify lung cancer early in all people who are at risk of the disease, not just those who fit the classic, this is a, a man who's been smoking for 50 years and he has a cough and therefore he must have lung cancer, but recognizing that women get the disease, women get the disease even when they've never smoked as can happen to men, and we need to be able to figure out how to prevent lung cancer in everybody, and if we can't, how to find it in everybody early enough that we can really make an impactful difference. Thank you so much, Dr. Weekly. Um, Dr. Higgy Johnson, we are still seeing trials that don't include women uh, to equal number than men, and the problem with that is that we are approving of developing drugs that are being tested in a majority male population, and then the drug gets approved, mm -hmm. and then is used for everybody equally. Uh, what are some of the challenges and the opportunities when it comes to inviting women to clinical trials? Uh, as a short story, I had a young mother or two that was told by her previous oncologist, like, you are a very busy mother, probably a trial is not a good idea. And we know it's not our role to make decisions for our patients, it's their role. So what are some of the challenges and opportunities to include women more in lung cancer clinical trials? Mm -hmm. So I guess the first thing I would say, it, there is an issue with women, but there's also a whole group of underserved people, and we share common characteristics. I mean, essentially, the way most clinical trials are designed are that they are quite expensive for patients to participate in. So particularly if you are the carer for elderly parents or a child, you've got to find childcare, you've got to find transport, you may not live in a place, you're probably less economically empowered than the man of your age who doesn't have kids, for example, elderly parents to care for. So it's harder for you to get access. And then sometimes the trials are set up in such a way it's just really difficult for women to participate. Like they will ex deliberately exclude women of childbearing potential. Um, I think what you just said was just one of the more egregious examples of stereotyping a woman who's a mother that she's not interested in being involved in a scientific trial because she's too busy being a mother, like she's not a person outside of being a mother. So we have a stereotype as well about what women want to do and what they're interested in. So that's 
these are challenges. The big problem, as you said, is that the drugs are not tested and women, they don't find the side effects that are relevant to women, which we know occur. We know women have different kinds of toxicity. Then we have poorer efficacy, more toxicity, less compliance and poorer overall survival. So, you know, we're failing on so many fronts. And I think most of these are fixable. You know, honestly, I just think there needs to be a discussion. There probably needs to be KPIs set in place for the people designing the trials to say, okay, if I'm a woman and I'm 31 and I want to have kids, how do I get into this trial? And you're going to make it easy for me? You're going to give me transport so I can go there? You're going to provide some subsidies so I can pay a babysitter on site to come in? Or is the hospital going to provide a creche from, so my baby can sit in a creche? So these are not, this is not rocket science. This is just looking at it through the lens of the patient, I think. So I actually think there's lots of simple things we can do first. Yeah, but we need to start having the conversation. We don't have the conversation often enough, I think. I think that's a very good point. We're all researchers and scientists, and we need to move out of the scientist's head and adjust the trials to our patients' needs. The science is wonderful, but do these women really need that extra biopsy? Do these women can participate? And we need to discuss fertility up front. We are near the end of our conversation, but we want to discuss the existing pay gap for women and the healthcare workforce. Princess Dina, you mentioned that 70% of women that were in the front lines uh, during COVID and they remain in the workforce, um, not only as physicians, but nursing, uh, other support staff. And we all receive equal training, but we still see that palpable pay gap between women and male healthcare providers. Princess Dina, how can organizations and hospitals and us at the individual level improve this compensation gap that exists? Yeah, that's a tough question. First of all, you know, if we're going to talk meritocracy, you know, if uh, it should be gender free, you have a job, you know, it has a certain amount of responsibility, certain tasks. It shouldn't be based on, on gender pay, uh, you know, whether you're male or female. And certainly females should not be paid less for the same job. So, and we've, you know, and, and we still, I, I, I'm still very surprised to see that in Western countries where you least expect it to. And I'm always still shocked that, oh, my God, this topic has been talked about for so long <laughs> and it's still there. <laughs> it is quite shocking. And even though, you know, you... Western countries, you know, you kind of have more of the platform to talk about these things openly and to challenge them in the courts and, and so on, more than in our countries, so to speak. And it's still there. It's, it's, it's really quite something. But uh, so that definitely is unacceptable. Um, and I think, you know, We've seen during Corona where everybody clapped for the nurses, especially in Britain and certain countries, and we, they all clapped. And I, and I really thought, you know, I, I have, for example, special love for nurses because, you know, I saw what nurses did for my son, uh, you know, uh, the role that they play. They are the ones that stay with you throughout this sort of two and a half treatment. They become like your family in a way. And I see the physical and mental hard work that nurses have to go through. And they are, you know, are a big chunk of the healthcare workforce um, worldwide. And, and it is, I've always said, you know, why is it that the work of women is so downplayed, you know, the work of nurses, that without them, the hospital would just crumble, right? And, and I really thought after Corona with all the clapping and everybody was so thankful and so on, that they would have a pay raise. And they went on strike in England because I think they've just increased them like five pounds. I mean, something really insulting. Forgot all about their, uh, their sacrifice during Corona. The fact that they were, you know, they, they really took the brunt of the, of the risk of being there on the front line and so on. Yeah, it's, it's a big topic. I don't know what it is that we need to do to make um, this sort of system. Take note, why is it that you look at nursing and midwifery as if it's a second tier? No, it's not. Um, and without, you know, and to remind them that without them, the hospitals will not be where they are and so on. Um, I really don't have the answer because I really thought after Corona things will change and, you know, 
clapping doesn't just uh, doesn't uh, fix it. You know, they need to have uh, systems in place. Uh, governments need to appreciate female work the same as they do um, men's work. Uh, and I don't have the answer for that, I'm afraid. Thank you. A follow-up question. Do you think pay transparency will help? It means, you know, salary tends to be something that nobody talks about. Yes. Mm. Particularly when it comes to women, we are not taught um, or guided on how to, like, talk about money. That's something yes. you don't talk. Yeah. Do you think that we help with some of these inequalities with the pay Absolutely. Gap? I think that is uh, an absolute thing. Like you said, I don't know why it's always a mystery about pay pay grades or pay range of salary and so on. Yeah, pay transparency would be able to solve a lot of that, I think, because half the time women discover by chance, right? Like Hollywood actors, I hear they <laughs> discover that they are paid so much less than, you know, I mean, this is sort of, this seems to be highlighted lately, but of course it goes down uh, on all jobs. So I think, yeah, if you know that this job is this much, you at least you can put your finger up and say, look, I know that I should be within this range. Why am I not so? I think that is uh, definitely uh, a way to go. It's just uh, incredulous that this is still ongoing in our time in, in 2020, but, uh, 2023. But we just have to keep talking about this. My grandma, who big big fan, she tells me, she's 93, I can't believe we're still fighting for this. Mm. Yes. I'm going to pass away and you're still fighting for yes. this. Yes. She's like, I don't want to protest anymore about yeah. gender <laughs> equity. This woman has gone in so many protests. So as a junior investigator and physician, it's my honor to have this conversation with the three of you. Before we wrap up, I would like to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts with our audience about gender equity in thoracic oncology and what we all can do to eliminate this gap. I will start with Dr. Weekly. I think that this type of a conversation, even if it seems like it's been happening for a long time, I do think we're making some progress. And just to encourage people to continue to ask those questions, to continue to uh, put themselves forward as someone who wants to participate, uh, to be active. And I'm saying that to the early career investigators who are focused in, in lung cancer and other thoracic malignancies, whether they are men or women, but for the women to step forward um, and for the men as they are stepping forward to be looking side to side, making sure that the women are stepping forward with them so that we are bringing everybody forward together. Dr. Hickey Johnson? I think we need internally to question what our model of what a successful person and a successful leader is in an academic organization. I think still, even, you know, despite so many years um, of being in an academic institution, when I think of somebody who's successful, I have to say, okay, so no, it doesn't have to be middle class, uh, middle aged, middle class man, essentially. Um, and I think that's for both men and women. And I agree. I I see in myself, you know, hesitancy to step forward, to 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 be because partly because you're afraid you won't be supported if you fail. So both things need to happen. The women need to step forward, and the institution needs to support them so that it's okay. You know, I heard this wonderful quote saying that we've achieved gender equality when a mediocre woman can be just as successful as a mediocre man. And I think that's true. You know, because men get nurtured, they get supported, they get mentored by their organizations, I think in a way that we still don't do effectively for women. So I think those are simple things. Well, maybe not simple things, but things that we can change. Princess Dina, any additional thoughts or information do you like to share with your audience? Well, I just wanted to pick up some of the comments that were said by Fiona and Heather. And one of them, like you said, this business about accessing uh, um, uh, clinical trials. I, when I was director of the King Hussein Cancer Foundation, we would be covering patients from donations, literally from A to Z. And uh, I remember this one child that stopped coming for treatment. And then when we asked why, it was really the sort of $1 transport. Imagine we were covering that child for like $50,000, $60,000 just to finish 
this treatment, but that one dollar taxi going back and forth stopped him from treatment. And that's when we we started a transport program yeah. and a hotel program and, and all of that. So that I wanted to say, uh, add to what Fiona said. It is doable. It is fixable. They are not costly things to intervene if we put the gender lens and also the patient lens. Why is it they're not able to come to treatment? That's one. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, this whole idea about women not being in clinical trials or in academic citations or on steering committees and so on, it's actually not just gender. It's also, I find there's also colonialism in health in, this, in, in the sense of law. And, you know, when, when I put myself up for election for presidency of UICC, I had been going to all their um, conferences from 2006, I would participate, took my hand up, and I was keynote speakers, and ta, 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 ta. And then one day I said, you know, why is it we don't speak about our experience? I was part of a group on the ground actually delivering cancer care. We changed the narrative of cancer care in our mm. country. I was a CEO. I'm not some ribbon-cutting princess. I was right <laughs> there. I'm a mother of a cancer survivor. <laughs> I'm on the ground with the team. We know the obstacles. We know this, you know, all of that. Why is it that only from high-income countries, they are theorizing about what's happening in low-middle-income countries? You know what? I'm putting up myself for a lecture. We can speak about our own experience because not, you know, we did it on the ground and we succeeded. So I find that a lot, even in conferences, you, you see the same people, the same people from high income countries as if they were. And, you know, when I was president and unfortunately it was canceled, the big Congress uh, that was due to happen in Oman at the time, I remember looking at the list and then I saw nobody from Africa. You know what? I've seen people from Africa. Maybe 50 years ago, they didn't have much knowledge about or the experience. But now we have amazing ones mm -hmm. who studied in the U.S. Mm -hmm. who can speak about cervical cancer better than I would or worked on the ground. Why is it we don't have those speakers who have the lived experience on the ground, know the challenges on the ground mm -hmm. to be on those speaker lists? Mm -hmm. And I still find that predominantly the case. Yeah. And so it's not just gender, it's also gender and low middle income yeah. countries mm -hmm. who are not represented to speak about our experiences. And I know from our doctors back in Jordan, they also find it very difficult, male, let alone female, that they are never the first author or this. I know about cancer in refugees. They come, the sort of the powers to be in the high income countries, they come and take the information from them in Turkey, from, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis. We were, Jordan was in the forefront, Turkey, Lebanon. So they take their knowledge and they get to be the first author. Their career goes up. But you never see our doctors who actually had to deal with the refugee crisis being the main speaker. Mm. So it needs to change. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to have also youth on the table. That's another yes. thing. Yes. This is the thing. So I know at UICC, we made a point to also when we are looking who gets to be on the ballot, you know, geographical, if, you know, all, everything equal, geographical, gender, youth, mm. females to male, etc. And like you said, Heather, it's really just pointing out the elephant in the room, asking that questions. Are we being equitable? Are we having equal representation for people who have the same quality that bring to mm -hmm. the table? That's going to make it forward. Thank you so much. And this was a great discussion. Thank you to you, Your Royal Highness, uh, Princess Dina Mireta Jordan, Dr. Weekly, and Dr. Hickey Johnson for being so generous with your time. And of course, for all the work you all do as leaders in the field. Thank you for joining us. And there's a great kickoff to the 2023 World Conference on Cancer in Singapore. And thanks to everyone. Uh, who's listening for this special episode on Cancer Concerted, I will give the opportunity uh, to our guests to say uh, goodbye. Dr. Weekly. Well, thank you. This has been a fabulous conversation and uh, wanted to keep going. So yes. we'll have to <laughs> another time. It was wonderful. Yes. Thank you. Dr. Higgy Johnson. Yeah, I know. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I think we need to continue over a glass of wine. Princess Dina. Yeah, it's been an amazing discussion. And like Heather said, I think we could go on and on with many <laughs> stories <laughs> on the ground uh, that we face. Uh, really, it's been an honor sitting with all of you ladies. 
Thank and thank you again, and thanks for everyone for listening to this very special edition of Lung Cancer Considered, recorded live at the World Conference in Singapore. Please listen each day for World Conference on Lung Cancer highlights. You can listen to other episodes in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, isoc.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you will tune in regularly. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.